Hi, everybody. Alan Arnett here with another podcast on the blog on alanarnett.com. It is Wednesday, June 21st, the longest day of the year. So um, this is not a, this a solstice. I always get confused on this stuff. Anyway, so I am so excited. Most people who have followed my podcast and blogs and stuff know that I use the Himalayan database as my Bible for statistics coming up out of, out of all things Himalaya, Nepal, and, and Tibet climbing. And of course, the Himalayan database is synonymous with Ms. Elizabeth Hawley, who passed away a few years ago. And a lot of people know, but many people don't know, that there is a person who worked with Elizabeth, Ms. Hawley, since 19, no, I'm sorry, since 2016, and that's Billy Barreling. Hi, Billy. Hi, Alan. Nice to see you. But hey, first of all, I've worked with Liz Hawley since 2004. 2004. She handed over to me. Sort of, she in 2016, she said, I'm done with it. Now you continue. So it was 2004, so almost 20 years. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. You know, Billy, I don't know if you remember or not, but the first time that we met, it was through our mutual friend, Jamie McGinnis. And I was with Jamie. We were going to Shishapangma. And I'm not sure what you were doing, but uh, Jamie said, hey, I want you to meet Billy Barron. She's part of the Himalayan database, and you've got to meet her because she is an amazing human being. And she lives in Kathmandu, but she also is out of Germany and lots of things. And so I went over to you, and we met for the first time in Tibet. You remember that? I do remember that. And was, could this have been 2005? It was, was 2007. It? 2007. Okay. Where was I in 2007? I don't know. Was I in Tibet then? I don't know, but I do remember meeting you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then uh, a few years later, you climbed Everest. And um, yeah, so that's all oh, that seems such a long time ago. And I remember, Billy, that you you, know, you kind of looked, walked up and we shook hands and said hello, exchanged pleasantries. And she said, Alan, I have a question for you. I said, okay, what is it? He said, how do you get your information? <laughs> and I, and I, I wasn't sure if it was a, uh, it was, it would I be, you know, it was inquisition or it was just curiosity. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure. I wonder. It was probably inquisition. <laughs> <laughs> so Billy was born in the Bavarian Alps in uh, Garmisch. Uh, I always mispronounce everything, but Garmisch uh, Partik. Go ahead. Garmisch Partenkirchen. I know it's a bit of a mouthful. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, Garmisch. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, you know, when I look at your CV, it looks like a travel log. And we'll get a little bit into this. Uh, but, oh my gosh, the number, the stuff that you have done is just incredibly impressive. But not only in journalism, and but also in mountain climbing. And that's what people, um, I don't think they understand a lot of times that people that do journalist, jur journalism for mountaineering have a love of mountaineering. And that's what causes us to want to write about it and just live it when we're not in the mountains. At least we can live vicariously through the mountains. And so you have climbed six of the 14 8,000-meter mountains, including Everest, Lhotse, Makalu, Choyoyu, Manaslu, and Broad Peak. And three of those without supplemental oxygen, that's Choy, Manaslu, and Broad Peak. Um, and we're going to get into the whole uh, Manaslu uh, controversy over whether, you know, the true summit, the false summit, and all that stuff. But uh, first off, let's get to know you a little bit better. Um, so you said that uh, the Himalayan database, uh, if you relied on that to pay your rent, uh, you'd be living on the streets. So, <laughs> uh, 
you uh, you work primarily for the Swiss Humanitarian Aid. It's a communications expert and translator, among other things. And uh, as I said earlier, your CV looks like a, a, I mean, I'm looking at it just skinning it right now. You've worked in Pakistan and in Nepal, uh, Germany to Pakistan, Afghanistan, Ukraine, and mostly around humanitarian um, causes. So talk to us a little bit about why humanitarian? What what your what drove your heart? What draws your heart to that? Well, it was interesting. So uh, I moved to Switzerland in two thousand and two after my then partner and I, my Grocot, split up, and Mike was the one, the guy who brought me or took me to the Himalaya. And I moved to Switzerland, and I worked here as a journalist for a radio station. And back in the days, this radio station still broadcast on shortwave. This is how oh, wow. old I am. My God, you know, the young listeners wouldn't even know what's shortwave. <laughs> anyway, and I interviewed the delegate for humanitarian aid about something. And at the end of the interview, I just said to him, hey, listen, you know, I'm a journalist, but I'd love to work in humanitarian aid. Is there any job we can do? And he said to me, well, why don't you send me your CV and I'll put you into the right direction? And then, and I actually met him last week and he could remember it. You know, there was a big, a big birthday party for the Swiss Humanitarian Aid Unit and he was there totally fresh and he remembered me. It was so nice. Anyway, so what, where I am now, so Switzerland, I mean, it's a unique thing. Swiss Humanitarian Aid, it's part of the Swiss government. So we are part of the foreign department. Now they have a so-called Swiss Humanitarian Aid Unit and I always describe it with, there's a bucket full of um, doctors, a bucket full of nurses, a bucket full of water engineers, a bucket full of uh, whatever, um, architects, and a tiny bucket with journalists. So yeah. if there is a disaster, you know, an earthquake or, you know, military operation or floods or whatever, anywhere in the world, and, you know, the, the people need to go in a rapid response team, they often send a journalist as well to deal with communications experts, to deal with the media, you know, and do all oh. the reporting, you know, stuff that goes back to headquarters. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I worked for the Nepal earthquake and I did everything, you know, it's not only, oh, I only do media questions. No, I mean, you, you know, you're out there, you're, you're, I mean, or I was in Lesbos, um, I don't know whether it was big news, it was in, in, in the US, it was in 2020 when this uh, refugee camp went up, up in fire. And we went there and I went as a communications expert, but I was doing, you know, I was at the water point. I was trying to crowd control and, and I report to headquarters. So these are wonderful jobs, which um, some people say, well, but people, you know, but Billy, why, how can you say it's a wonderful job? But I feel very privileged to speak to these people. You know, I mean, I lived in Pakistan for two years, you know, in Pakistan, there was the military operations up in SWAT and you have all these internally displaced people. I mean, back then it was 3 million and people, they have nothing. They live in refugee camps or IDP camps, so to speak. And I get to talk to these people, you know, or I get to talk to the people who, who arrived in Lesbos, you know, from Afghanistan, from Syria. And, you know, you really realize that nobody leaves their homes easily. You know, they yeah. all have a reason. And and it's um, and I think it's very easy to say, oh, you know, they're 
you know, the people who just jump on the bandwagon and they just come right. and they're economic uh, refugees. And of course they exist. But I have to say that, you know, the the, the lion's share of the people, it's so hard for them. And, and But I do, I mean, even though the situation is often, you know, dire or sad, but I don't let it get me down because then I'd be doing the wrong job. You know, I should be there and be there for the people and talk to them and, you know, make, maybe, I don't know, bring some sunshine into their lives. And I think you've uh, made a comment um, that, that you find, an, you find interest in every single human being that you meet. Mm, yeah. I do think, you know, uh, yes, of course, you know, you and I, we meet people, you know, who climb these big mountains or adventurers or people who travel around the world. But I think if you talk, it doesn't matter who you speak to, everybody has a story to tell. And I'm sure you've been there. I mean, you know, sometimes you talk to somebody and think, oh my God, that's a really boring person. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they tell you these stories and you yeah. just think, oh my God, I had no idea. Yeah. But I think it's so important to still ask questions. And what I find in our society now is that people are so busy with themselves and with yeah. their own issues that often they don't ask many questions anymore and I you know of course I talk about myself as well but I really always want to make sure I ask questions because there's nothing more rewarding or more interesting than finding out you know about the you know about, about the person you speak to so yeah yeah I just find it fascinating that um I was, I'm so fortunate that I was able to live in Europe for five years, lived in Amsterdam for two years, and lived in Geneva, Switzerland, where you are right now in Switzerland, uh, but mm. uh, in Geneva for three years. And I always tell people, if you ever have an opportunity to live outside your zip code, outside your postcode, <laughs> much less outside your country, jump on it, because it will change your life for the better, because you realize that the world is a very, it's a, it's a melting pot of cultures, and there is no one 100% right way or wrong way. You know, there's certainly variations on these themes, but we could learn something from everybody that we interact with. And, Absolutely. you know, and you've, uh, you had an interesting beginning, to, especially from education. You know, obviously you went to school in Germany where you were born, but then you ended up in London. And I love the fact that you were, one of your first jobs was teaching German in London. And then you went back to Germany and taught English the Germans. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. so you had this, you had this, this solid background in this multilingual uh, ability. That I guess that led to some of the translation work that you've done. Yeah, but Alan, and that is not on my CV. But you know where I learned how to speak English. I mean, of course, you know I had English at school, but I couldn't right. string a sentence together. I learned how to speak English in Westport, Connecticut. Oh my gosh. Yes, I went, that was the, I don't think it's any, anywhere on my CV or any, so when I was 19, I mean, I was a bit of a basket case, I had no interest, and I was so bad <laughs> at school, and I did a, I actually did a training, or what we call an apprenticeship, I am actually a certified shop assistant, and then when I was um, 18, and I just finished my apprenticeship, I went to the States as an au pair girl, a nanny. Ah. Yeah, like so many fair. Europeans do, and that was the first. And you know, and then I went to the states, and I mean, I had a, I worked for a wonderful family. I mean, they had five children, so no wonder I never had children. 
<laughs> but no, they were great. Great. It was lovely. And and this is where I learned how to speak English. And you know, I stayed there for a year. It was in 1987, so it was just 20 then. And I came back to Germany, and for the first time in my life, I was able to do something. I was able to speak English, you know, because I was so bad at school. I had no interest. I had no expertise in anything, but I could, I mean, not as well as I speak it now. And I had this broad American accent, which I can't do anymore. But um, so I, and, and then I thought, oh, I don't really want to work now. Maybe I can go to school. And then I found a school and I did a training in the school as a foreign language secretary. And then I oh. carried on to uh, as an interpreter, uh, translator and interpreter. And during that time, I went to the UK and I was teaching German. And then I taught English in, in, in Germany, yeah. <laughs> an au pair in Connecticut. That's not bad. That's not bad work if you can get it. <laughs> yes. I talk, about, talk about being immersed in, in a culture. Oh my gosh. Yeah. When was the first what when was the first time that you went to Nepal? My first time was in 1997 on a trek to Everest Space Camp. When was your first visit to Nepal? A year later, 1998. Okay. What what brought you there? It was, so when I moved to the UK as an assistant teacher, oh God, I was I think it was in 93, 92, 93. And then I met my partner for 10 years, Mike who had just started to climb and Mike had been obsessed with the Himalayas, with the whole Everest history since he was a young boy. Yeah. And he had planned this big trip to Nepal, you know, like a three month trip to Nepal and then three months in South America. And it was trekking and climbing three, 6,000 meter peaks. And, and he planned this with his friends. And, uh, and then we started going out and, and I just said, can I come? And I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. I just thought, oh, I'm going to do a bit of trekking. And I remember I had to buy everything because even yeah. though I grew up in the Bavarian Alps, I I never liked the mountains because have you ever been to Garmisch Partenkirchen? I'm in the area, yes. Yes. So we are surrounded by mountains. Yes. And if you are a young person and you're a bit of a free spirit, the mountains, you know, you feel boxed in. So, you know, we have the saying, get rid of the mountains, we want a clear view to the Mediterranean. You know, that was my teenage, my teenage motto. And um, so, my, so I had to buy everything. And then I remember I had to buy a pair of plastic boots because in 1998, when you wanted to climb a 6,000 meter peak, you didn't have these fancy scarpers. Well, there were scarper vegas, actually. There were scarpers, but there were plastic boots. Yeah, double and plastic, yeah, and there were 500 Deutschmarks, which is so much money for me. And I just thought, what am I doing? I'm buying these pair of boots, which are ugly. And I don't even know whether I like, you know, whether I like it or not. And and um, and during the process uh, of writing my book, um, which I published in German earlier this year, I went through my diary, which I wrote then. And I always say, I mean, I don't know about you, but, you know, when I first met, went to Nepal, I would say, oh, 1998, this is when I fell in love with Nepal. Yeah, but then yeah. I read my diary 
oh my God, Alan, uh, it was so hard. And I was complaining that I had to walk up this mountain, that it was such hard work. I don't think I want to do this. And, and But, you know, obviously, you know, after the whole trip, which lasted three months, and I climbed my first 6,000, it was Potamo. And then my second one was uh, Mirror Peak and my third one, um, Island Peak. So I did all the, oh, all those three in that trip. Uh, and we crossed the Mingbo La, the Tassi Lapta. I mean, the Mingbo La is next to the Amphulapta. Nobody crosses it anymore. But it was a wild trip. Um, but it was hard and I was complaining. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think my affinity for the mountains in Nepal outweighed my frustrations. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't it interesting, though, how, because I always tell people this, that mountaineering is a sport, and I've said this a billion times, that mountaineering is a sport that that you get into it and you go, no way, never, ever again, forget it. Or you fall in love with it, and it's this expensive addiction for which there is no cure other than more climbing. <laughs> and, I, and I love okay. how you say that, you know, when you were growing up, you looked at the mountains with disdain. And now you're saying that you felt trapped by it. You know, it's interesting because there's a parallel because I grew up in in, uh, in Western Tennessee where there was nothing but trees all over the place. And then I ended up in Texas where there is no trees. There are no trees. <laughs> <laughs> and so and so and so then I came here to Colorado and I kind of live on the front range where there's not a lot of trees until you go into the mountains. When I go back to Memphis, I feel claustrophobic because all the trees are all surrounding me. So I kind of have that also. I want to go see the Mediterranean, except not from Memphis. Anyway, this parallel is not working. So um you so so you're in you're in you're in there you're in nepal in 98 you and mike are having the adventure of your lifetime you're in the himalayas you're seeing the majesty and the scale of it um when did you first meet uh, we'll talk about your book in just a second when did you mm -hmm. first meet uh, miss holly was that no no let, let's go to your book first i want to go back to i want to spend some good quality time talking about both of these so your book uh, the translation of it is in German right now. It's available, and hopefully it'll be translated to English soon. I don't know if you know anybody that could translate from German to English. Do you know anybody? Well, that that? myself. <laughs> I've translated three books. My, and I would do it myself, and I'd do it for free. And I've I've tried. I've tried the mountaineers. I've tried vertebrate. I've tried, and I have so <laughs> many people, English-speaking, who say, Billy, I'd love to read your book. And I've... And I just thought, well, I'm going to start translating it uh, whenever I have time, but I haven't had time yet. So I need to, yeah. But anyway, sorry, I interrupted you. No, 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 it's fine. One, one of the books that you translated was for the late Uli Steck. That had to be an interesting project. And both yes. working with Uli as well as translating his, his book. But the title of your book is, and I, I absolutely love this title because anybody who's ever been to Kathmandu will instantly identify with the title of your book, it's, which is, I have a bike in Kathmandu. Mm. So the I guess the background is that anybody that knows you when you're in Kathmandu, you're either running or you're on your bike. <laughs> Very true. Or or chasing mountaineers or ch chasing or, or climbing a mountain. But it's so funny because you're right. I mean, Liz Hawley, who we'll talk about later, she was world famous for her beetle. And yeah, of course, blue, I'm not baby as blue beetle. the baby blue beetle, and I'm not as famous, and I wouldn't, you know, I can't fill her shoes. But of course, people know me on my bicycle, and I don't know whether you know Greg Venovage from IMG. And whenever he sends me an email, he just says, "Hey Billy, 
Are you still riding your bike around Kathmandu? <laughs> so people know me. And funnily enough, I have a little bit of a side story because I've been riding my bike in Kathmandu since 2004 because that was the first thing I bought when I started working for Liz Hawley. And it's still the same bike. And I've oh, never wow. come it. And I, I've only had like two flat tires. And seven weeks ago, on the 30th of April this year, after I've written my book, I have a bike in Kathmandu, my saddle broke off underneath my bottom. I fell off my bicycle and I broke <laughs> my ankle. Would you oh, believe it? Oh, yeah. unceremonial. Oh. Yeah. And it's funny, there's actually a story about it in the Nepali Times. Um, so I've been wearing a big boot over the last six weeks in Kathmandu. I mean, it's it's healed now. I'm still not running, but I'm, I'm walking up hills. But yeah, very, you know, it was really ironic. You know, Kathmandu is, is just this melting pot of cultures. And, uh, you know, I, I guess, you know, the um, it, it was back in the 60s, it was, you know, known for, you know, the hippies going over and experiencing life and all of that. And today it's, it's much more, I hesitate to use the word cosmopolitan, but uh, it has definitely, um, you know, advanced over the years. It still though has this mystique and this, 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 this aura about it that I think anybody that goes there, uh, you know, you're, you're, when you get off the airplane, you know, it's that humidity that's kind of touches you. And then, you know, you take a taxi or you're in a, in a, in a van going into, into Tamel or wherever. I always stay at the Hotel Tibet. You know, it's my favorite hotel there. But, um, you know, and you that see cows. the way it was. But you see these cows, you know, chewing their cud in the middle of the street. And you see people with, you know, carrying, you know, the goods on their shoulders. I know it's not the way it was. And that's, you know, kind of that's the, that's the. You've been there and you say, well, it, it's not like it was, but still, if you've never been there, it's this eye opener. So over the time that you've been there since 1998 to now, what is it, about 25 years plus or minus, how, what have you seen the changes in Kathmandu? And, and is it, that chronicled in your book? It's, it's an interesting question because uh, I find what's really been thriving in Kathmandu is definitely private business hotels, ah. restaurants. I mean, when you first arrived in 97 or I-98, I'd say 99.9% .9 of the cars on the road were the little Maruti taxis. Oh, the touch now, yeah. Now you have these big SUVs, uh, which yes. are far too big for the roads. Right. Um, and so you can see that there's a lot of money now in Nepal, you know, but at a certain level, you know, there's still, I mean, Nepal is still one of the poorest countries in the world, but if you go to Kathmandu, and if you think that, I, I mean, I'm not quite sure, but these cars, they cost more than twice as much in Nepal than they cost in the States because the import levy is so high. Yeah. So there is a lot of, so you see, um, I mean, you know, also healthcare. I mean, my dentist is in Nepal. I mean, I would travel around the world to go to see her. And even though my German friends say, oh my God, you go to the dentist in Nepal. And I think, well, you walk into her practice, you think you're in Switzerland. So uh. 
that there's a lot of so it's developed quite a lot and and you know the hotels i mean the hotel tibet no longer exists the way you knew it i mean Sering is now she's building a potala palace i don't know whether you've seen it it's huge humongous so uh now you have a marriott you have you know uh you have a lot of really nice restaurants you can get vegan cheese in nepal you can you know i mean all these changes i mean it, almost everything's possible so from that point of view privately great infrastructure roads electricity lines pollution is the same as it was in 1998 if not worse wow. and okay. you know that goes to show i mean i really don't know but the roads alan it's been I mean, the whole of Kathmandu is dug up and I'm very resilient. I go running in any weather, in any dust, in, you know, in any pollution. But there have been days recently when I just thought, I think this is unhealthy. So um, people have allergies. Uh, my flatmate, Priti, who I live with in Kathmandu, in, in <clears throat> Lazim, she's currently in Europe. And she just said, Billy. I mean, I can, I, my allergies have gone, you know, after two or three days, there's so many people. And that makes me sad that, you know, the, the, the government doesn't do more to protect its own people, you know, and, 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 and the, but the people just, they just accept it, you know, it is what it is. But, uh, but I do, I hope that the younger generations, the ones who stay, because of course, you know, the young educated Nepalese, they want to leave, which is fair enough. So, but I, you know, that makes me, yeah. So, so a lot has changed and, 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 but so privately, but when it comes to the infrastructure, um, I think it's, it's pretty bad. I always thought that one of the worst jobs in the world uh, is that poor person who's directing traffic. You see them at a crossroads and, and all four lanes coming in is just backed up you know, with scooters and cars. I mean, for as far as the eye can see, nothing is moving. And this poor guy is standing there and he's pointing and he's, you know, whistling. And, you know, he's like the human traffic light and nobody's paying any attention to him. But somehow or another, it works. So there's order to the chaos. Yeah, but, but it's <laughs> funny you should say that because only the other day I was, you know, I mean, I was late again and I, you know, the, the guy on the crossroads, you know, going into Tamil right. <laughs> and I did what most people do, you know, and, and, you know, I just ignored him and I just went and he was screaming and whistling and, and you know, I was, you know, but then <laughs> on my way home, I felt so bad because I just thought, well, this guy, is trying to regulate the traffic. And yes. if everybody ignores it like me, it's never gonna work. So I cycled back to him and I apologized. I said, you know what? Oh. I am so sorry I did that. And yeah. I won't do it again. Because, <laughs> you know, and it's again, so funny. I just said my my flat, my pretty is hearing in, in she, she was in Garmisch and we went out for a bike ride. And she said to me, oh, Billy, do the cyclists also have to obey the traffic rules? Because, you know, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, that's just story. I am sure that I'm sure this guy is telling that story. You won't believe this lady came up to me. She said, I'm sorry. It's never happened. It'll never happen again. So yeah, your I felt book, so bad. I just thought, you know, if, if, yeah. Anyway, I have too many side stories. We'll never get uh, down to the gritty here. So, yeah. So um, you're, I have a bike in Kathmandu. Um, what, why did you want to write that book, Billy? Really? 
I didn't want to write it. I didn't want to write it. I was uh, approached by Tirolia, which is one of the biggest uh, Austrian publishers. So they do Messner's book, Harbourless books. They do, you know, uh, a lot of outdoor mountaineering books. And they approached me and they said, Billy, uh, we were in our meeting. We we're talking about you the other day and we, you know, wanted to approach you and ask you whether you want to write a book. And my answer was, no, thank you very much. I don't think I've experienced enough in my life. I think I have to live for a little bit longer. But they were not of the opinion. And I truly didn't want to write it because I just thought, oh, God, you know, having to write a book, it's like a democless sword, sword you have to write all the time. But then they asked me whether I could, because, yeah, I initially said no. And then I know Karin Steinbach quite well. And Karin Steinbach, she wrote Galinda's book, which I translated. She co-wrote wrote Uli Steck's book. She's done a book with Haberle. She's done books with Messner. And she's actually also a good friend. So they asked me whether I could imagine writing a book with her. And then I all of a sudden it dawned on me that it was actually probably quite a big honour that they came to me and asked me whether I would write a book. Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. <laughs> And, and then all of a sudden, I didn't feel so alone anymore. You know, I just thought, okay, I can imagine doing it with Karen. So in the end, I wrote five chapters and Karen wrote two chapters, but it was great to have her. And um, and yeah, and it was, um, yeah, I think it turned out okay, I hope. Well, I, I, as you said earlier, I, I wish it was, it was in English, but I would instantly buy it because my, my German is about as good as my, uh, my Nepalese. Um, no, no, no. Yeah, I in... promise it it will be in English. It's really, really, really important to me to have an English yeah. version. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, as, as, as someone who's in the middle of writing a book, I've got a 60,000-word manuscript, and now I'm in the process of trying to find an agent and a publisher. And, oh, wow. I, I, you know, I tell you what, my I would rather go back and try to climb Everest barefoot than go through this process again. But we'll oh, just yeah. leave it at that. Um, so let's move. Well, I want to know more about your book now. I have to interview you then. <laughs> Anytime. So let's talk about mountaineering. Uh, and I love the fact that that you originally you know looked at the mountains with disdain, and now all of a sudden you you know you're out there climbing these things, and, uh, and not only just climbing them, but I mean you're embracing mountaineering as a you know as as a as a passion, if you will. Um, and your most recent climb, I guess, was in May 2022. So. Uh, roughly a year ago on Dalagiri, um, and you're trying to climb it um, without oxygen, and I, you know, and you've done three of them without oxygen, um, and so you know, we could talk through all of them: Everest, Losi, Makalu, Choyo, U, Manaslu, Broad Peak. But um, pick one of them and, and tell us, tell us what. Talk to us about the the emotion of climbing, and why why is it that you're willing to suffer? Because we all, I mean, whoever says that you know, climbing is a cakewalk and there's a Starbucks at the top and an escalator has never climbed the mountain. Um, you know, talk to us about why the suffering of mountain climbing yields the benefit that encourages you to want to go back and do it again. Okay, well, first, there are a few elements I want to I highlight. So, you know, the uh, bottled oxygen or without bottled oxygen. I mean, I climbed Everest Lofsi and Makalu with bottled oxygen. And Everest, I mean, as, as we know, I mean, I think Everest without bottled oxygen is only reserved for the for the best of the best. Right. And the best of the best sometimes fail. And, um, you know, so, um, and then Lofsi, 
yeah, it was too high for me. And then Makalu, I thought I would quite like to try without oxygen, but again, Makalu is 8485, uh, so it's still high. Um, and I think, you know, climbing without bottled oxygen is just purer and it's more, yeah, more, it's, it's more real. And, and um, it was interesting. Now, I want to talk about Chowoyu because Chowoyu was the first 8,000 that I attempted in 2005. And I was with Andrew Locke, an Australian mountaineer who's also climbed all 14. Know him well. Um, I've no, Pangma with him. He's a, he's a sweetheart. Okay, yes. But Andrew was so experienced, you know, he had climbed 10, 8,000 meter peaks and and I got to camp two and I was bloody slow. I'm still bloody slow. And Andrew <laughs> just said to me, you know what, Billy? I don't think high altitude climbing is your thing. And I just thought, okay. And I do as I'm told. That's how I was brought up by my parents. So, you know, off I went and that was it. And then in 2008, I met Russell and then I climbed Everest with him. And I went back to Chowoyu in 2016, I think it was, with Henry Todd. And I summited without supplemental oxygen. I was the only person on the team to summit without supplemental oxygen. But, and I'm not, you know, when I came down, it was so funny because, you know, there were maybe out of the, I mean, let's put it in percentage, you know, maybe... 20% of the people who were there tried without supplemental oxygen. Um, and everyone said, well, Billy, amazing without supplemental oxygen. But you go back to the Himalayan database. I mean, all 10 German women before me climbed it without supplemental oxygen. And to this very day, Alan, more people have climbed the lower 8,000 meter peaks without supplemental oxygen than with. Now, Mountains, I mean, the five highest one, you know, you get to Makalu, it's 8,485. And then you get to Chowoyu, it's 82. And those 280 meters or 380 meters is a world of difference. Yeah. And, you know, back in the days, you would not, Broad Peak, uh, Gushabrom, uh, Manaslu, you would not go with even, supplemental. Even K2. Even K2, yes. So... So to me, it, it, but it was so funny because they were oh, amazing without supplement. And, and I say that now to people I said, you know, now Manaslu, obviously, because Manaslu has been the training mountain for Everest for the last five or six years. So Manaslu, now you have more summits with supplemental oxygen than the other way around. But go back to the database and check up until eight years ago, there was still more. So so I, I think these, or Broad Peak, you know, I summited Broad Peak without supplemental oxygen. Um, and, and it's quite low. So, yeah, I mean, I would not, and that's why I turned around on Daulagiri last spring. I mean, I was, I got to Camp 3 and I was absolutely tired, but it, it's not an option for me to go with supplemental oxygen now. I'd rather go down. Probably part of the reason, I mean, Galinda is a very good friend of mine, Galinda Kaltenbrunner, who was the first woman to climb all 14 without right. supplemental oxygen. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think we talked so much about it. And I think now for me, this is just purer. Of course, I couldn't, I'm not strong enough, couldn't have climbed the big ones without it. Um, and that's why if I ever do another one, you know, because my dream is to do seven, which is half of the 14, 
if I managed to do another one, I would, you know, go to the lower ones. You know, Kanchen Junga, I'd never go because it's too high. Yeah. Couldn't do it without supplemental oxygen. So anyway. But now a, I didn't uh, answer your question. Sorry. That's that's there. We'll come back to it. Um, I did a, I did a podcast with uh, Wilco Van Rulen, um, the Dutch climber, and yeah, uh, and he was talking about I I I, I think it was Makalu. I could be wrong, but he talked about getting almost. He was within four, three or four hundred meters of the summit, and um, and he was he was starting to starting to tank, and uh, and he had he was climbing with somebody that had there was a Sherpa near him that had an extra bottle and he thought about using it and he actually put it on I think I had the story right the bottom line though was that he stopped and he kind of looked around he said this is not the style that I climbed in and he turned around and went back down very similar to what you talk about and you know yeah. uh, climbing Climbing with and without oxygen is probably one of the great, um, you know, controversies in, in mountaineering next to, you know, did you stand on top of the true summit or not? And, you know, the Himalayan database, uh, which I think you're familiar with, uh, has, it says that 2.8% of the uh, now is close to 12,000 summits, including this year, uh, total summits, uh, including repeats, have been done without using, 2.8% um, were done without using supplemental oxygen. That's a tiny, tiny percentage. And that's like you say, it's the best of the best of the best. Plus they're genetically gifted. So, you know, hats off to you for the climbing the three that you did, you know, mm. um, but, you know, coming back to the suffering question, I mean, when you climb, you climb with oxygen, supplemental oxygen, you suffer without it, the, you know, it goes up exponentially. So what is it? What's the attraction, Billy? Why, why, why do you want to do this? Why do you want to put yourself in such pain? Uh, I mean, you know, of course, it's harder to climb a mountain without supplemental oxygen, you know, it goes without saying, but I think it's, it's, uh, I've always, the oxygen mask was never my friend, you know, I mean, if you know me, I, I hate things having things around, you know, I hate hats, I would never wear a baseball cap, I I mean, woolly hats, you know, beanies, I only put on when it's really cold, I don't, so the mask, <laughs> and that, oh, it just drove me mad. And yeah. I feel again. I mean, maybe that the, I I love my my freedom. My you know, and I think for me the mask it was so restricting. Um, and I think I mean it was hard for me with oxygen as well. You know, I mean I remember the first time I climbed Monaslu to the full summit, and I did it twice. So I used oxygen. I wanted to go without, and it was quite funny. I was with Russell, and again that year I was the only person on his trip who wanted to go without supplemental oxygen. And again, I was the slowest. And I got to camp two and Russell, the expedition leader, opened his tent. Everybody was already in their tents. And Russell opened his tent. Russell Bryce. Yep. Russell experience. Hi, Max. Yep. Exactly. And he put his head out and he said, Billy, you are supposed to impress me, not <laughs> depress me. And oh, that was it. Oh, you know, oh, because I was oh. so slow. So that's oh. here. So that. Then, you know, that yeah, I didn't, you know, said, okay, I'll put the O's on and I'll go with that. Obviously, uh, with Classic oxygen. Russell. Yeah, <laughs> it was, but it was clear. I was so sad. Uh, and I wasn't very, I wasn't doing very well that year. And I remember it was hard. And then the following year, I went back to Manaslu yeah. because I was then, like some people know, I used to write Russell's newsletters. So, yeah. you know, we had a good deal, you know, for, 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 for the fee. Um, and then I climbed it without. And it was so much nicer, you know, so... And 
hard, of course hard, but um, I don't know. I mean, I remember I met Cecile Scott. Do you know Cecile Scott? Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. And yeah. she had come back. That was her first 8,000-meter peak after the big disaster on K2 when she lost her newlywed husband. Yes. And she was up there, and she used oxygen. And I remember she came down whilst I was climbing up without O's. And she said, Billy, she told me afterwards, she said, you were smiling all over. She said, you know, you were just glowing. And I remember I was so happy. It was, yeah. So, yeah. And, and you know, and then I did um, Cho OU without oxygen, um, which was a big deal for me because that was the mountain. Andrew Locke told me I wasn't very good at it. And then I... <laughs> We used to sign without uh, without O's, and that was I think that was one of my happiest mountains, yeah, Joe yeah. because it was the first one, and it was yeah. And then Broad Peak, yeah, Broad Peak was hard. It was a very very long summit day. I mean, I, because I am slow, I'm quite fast up until about seven thousand meters, and then I slow yeah, down. Yeah. Um, yeah. But the physical exhaustion, and you know that because you've climbed big mountains, it's so. I mean. I don't know. I mean, I've never done an Ironman, but I don't know what you would have to do to match that pure exhaustion you get, you know, when you come back down. And, and on Broad Peak, I think I was on the go far too long for 29 or 30 hours. Oh. Far too long. Far too long. And I'm that, so slow. Yeah. And that summit ridge is just, just deadly. Oh, deadly. Yeah. 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 Beautiful. But beautiful. Broad Peak is so beautiful. I would never go to K2. It's far too dangerous and far too difficult for me. The great thing about Broad Peak is you climb and you see this beautiful mountain called K2 yeah. all the time. Yeah, it's great. Pyramid right there. Yeah. That, yeah. That's the first time I saw Broad Peak or uh, K2 was on Broad Peak from uh, from high up on Broad Peak. And I think it was 2007 or so. And I remember looking yeah. at K2 and I thought, nah, never, never. Well, you know, never yeah, say well, never, I guess. Well, you did. <laughs> so um so mountaineering so you have like me and and i mean we're relatively youngsters in the in the world of mountaineering it's the first you know serious climbs back in the like, 1700s or something in the alps so this is this is not a new sport it's been going on forever but i think it's safe to say that the changes that we've seen perhaps in the last since 2000 i'll dare say since 2013 with the um with the tragic season on on um, on Manislu, when I think it was six, 13 or 16 people who died in that avalanche, that it seemed like that was an inflection point. Um, and a lot of things have changed since then. Um, several of them, I'll just take them off briefly and I'd love to get your thoughts on just the general uh, changes of, of mountaineering. One is that, you know, especially in Nepal, um, just like in Argentina or in the Alps, <laughs> the local companies have really come in and begun to dominate the market displacing the the kind of the old guard they're still around the international mountain guides the adventure consultants and you know the regular uh, the people that you know kind of defined the sport back in the 90s but now you've got the seven summit treks and the rest that are uh, really dominating climbing in nepal supplemental oxygen dramatically changed and much more reliable of course the overall technology of all the way from boots to you know down gear that's all changed climbing on known routes um, you know known camps everything is a formula now um, do you think that the changes in the commercialization, I mean, this year we said, you know, record permits on Everest, what, 487 or 478 uh, uh, permits for Everest alone, uh, over a thousand across the, um, the Nepal uh, mountains. Do you think the commercialization is good? 
it's not a it's not a yes or no. It's, it's shades of gray, right? Commercialization is going to happen no matter what. But what are your thoughts on commercialization of mountaineering in general? I mean, you watch I mean, this from the statistical side of it, but also as a climber. I mean, I think you know, commercialization has been around for a long time, and I always yeah. use, and I don't know whether Guy Cotter agrees. I did a presentation in in <clears throat> the other day about my book and but I think he did agree because I always say night to me 1996 was the year oh there's my friend's dog sorry um was the year when commercialization really kicked off because right. it was the year when into thin air was written and I think it was the first time a book was published where people read oh my god this Sandy Hill Pittman had no idea and she was on Everest and you know and Sandy Hill Pittman apparently was far better than oh, yeah. you know I mean I've never met her but apparently she got a really bad deal in the book and she was not as incompetent and I remember reading the book and I think it was a big deal that she had a cappuccino or a, a an espresso maker I mean you know, people take this up to high camp now they take it up to the south coast let me yeah. just real quickly on that she this was her seventh of the seven summits so she had done Denali and Aconcagua and other ones that most guys you know, require today before you, uh, you know, most reputable guys require before you go to Everest. That cappuccino maker, that was actually a little pot, a little exactly. metal yes, pot. Yeah. It was not, yeah. you know, it was not this Malay thing that you yeah. plug into the wall. <laughs> exactly. I think she's just got a very bad, but I think that book and so many people read it, yes. it was the first time people said, oh my God. And I, you know, and I, to give you the numbers, I always use them in my presentation. So between 53 and 96, 673 people summited. And in 2022, I think it was 2022, 673 people summited in more than two weeks. So I, wow. I love these numbers because it's really one, it's 674 yeah. in 43 years. So you see what happened. So commercialization i mean has been around for a long time but i think it's been you know i mean but but it's a, a natural development and i think what we see now and i think the year 2023 really you know gave the gave it a little bit of a uh, what's the right word you know a new dimension of 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 who is going to the mountain and and people are less and less experienced. But I think we see exactly the same in Europe. I mean, I can't talk about the States, but you know, you go to Mont Blanc, you go to the Matterhorn. I mean, Alan, only 170 years ago, we thought the Matterhorn was unclimbable. Unclimbable. You know, it's not that long ago. And now if you put your head to it, very little experience, you can get up there. So why? should Nepal do it differently? You know, why? And and you mentioned the local companies. Very rightly so. So, I mean, I I would say, I would go as far as, I think 85% of the expedition business yeah. is now in local hands. Absolutely. And, yeah, and very rightly so. I mean, I, but I, what I do think is, you know, they, you know, the, 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 be the Westerners or the Nepali companies or Nepali, Nepali, they need to work together. We all know that people like you and I and 98% of the people who climbed Everest wouldn't have done it without the Sherpas or any 8,000 people. 
I mean, Absolutely. I wouldn't yep. put that out of base camp of any of my 8,000 is. But so we know we wouldn't be where we are without the Sherpas, but the Sherpas right. wouldn't be where they are now without us. So, you know, and I think that is, that's quite important. Um, and I, but, but, you know, I hear there's a lot of criticism going on at the moment, you know, whether it's, you know, obviously mostly on Everest because Everest is always in the spotlight. It's the highest, but you know, I think why, why do we criticize? Why? I mean, of course, there are parties at Everest Base Camp. Okay, I mean, when I climbed Everest in 2009, they had parties. People get upset. We've had, I mean, I live on the bottom of Germany's highest mountain. You know, upright ski, I don't know whether you know the concept of upright ski in the States. You know, it is, you know, you go skiing in the winter. I mean, first of all, our mountains are full of skiing lifts, which is not very nice. And then we party. And we've been doing that for 20 years. And who is to say that my mountain, my highest mountain in my country, that is not as mythical as as the Himalayas? So, you know, it's it's, and I, I I always sometimes I want to put it into perspective. And it's not to say that I think it's a good thing what's happening, but I think it just fits into our time. You know. So I think one of the one of the nuances though in this discussion is that I a thousand percent agree with you that every country has a right to monetize their natural resources. Argentina has done it with Aconcagua. The United States has done it with the national park system, putting out concessions on Denali, on Rainier, uh, in Italy, France, Switzerland, Germany has monetized all of their mountains to your points. So Nepal has every right to them to monetize their mountains as well. And big and A and D, and these countries like in the in the Alps and in the U.S. and Argent and also in Argentina, they have rules and regulations and professionally staffed rangers that are monitoring the mountain for safety. They've got some modicum of regulations that is gives some form of a structure. Now, mountaineering is not the Olympics. There's not a set of rules that you must do this, you must do that. It is a free form sport that everybody has a right to do in whatever style they deem is appropriate for them. What bothers me, Billy, is that this year there were 17 deaths on Everest. By my count, eight of those deaths were totally avoidable because they were inexperienced climbers and they were either abandoned on the mountain or they ran out of supplemental oxygen or some other avoidable error. And those eight people that I think were avoidable were all climbing with relatively lower cost local operators. So it just suggests the same thing happened in 2019 when there were 19 climbers across all of Nepal's 8,000 meter mountains who died. It was the same demographic of inexperienced climbers with low cost operators. So I guess everybody has a right to go climb a mountain and die. It's not for you or me to sit here and go, it's, you, know, you know, you can't go do that. It's like going in a car. You know, there's a chance that you can get in a car accident and die. However, I think there is a, um, a need for some level of, of oversight to protect people because mountaineering is one of those sports that you don't know what you don't know until you get there into it. So do you mm -hmm. think that there's some level of oversight that needs to be increased in, in the climbing community in general? Or just let it go and, you know, let Darwin, you know, be, be proved. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's a it's. I think it's it's really difficult because I mean I totally agree. I mean I think we would need better regulations. We would need. I mean, you know, on the Matterhorn, you have to be a certified mountain guide to lead. You know, in Nepal, you don't. You know, you can climb Everest. I've seen people they've climbed Everest one year and the next year they came back as expedition leaders or or guides. So you don't, you know, and I totally agree. I think we need regulations. Um, but also, and, but I think as a client or as an aspirant, so to speak, I think you also have your certain responsibility to check and to think, right, I've never, Absolutely. I mean, maybe I've climbed Kilimanjaro. So um, I could either go with a company that charges me 70,000 and I check what they offer me and of of course you know it I don't know whether the the the, the cheaper uh, operators you know whether they twist the truth or whether they are they say we provide this that or the other but I do think that if I am somebody really inexperienced I think I have to also do my homework and I have to wonder why this one company charges 70,000 and the other one 35,000. So, you know, I mean, I think the responsibility also lies a little bit or not not only a little bit, you know, with the people who book these, uh, these trips, you know, you've got to ask yourself, why are they so cheap? And then, because if you book a trip for 70,000, hopefully, you know, you know, I mean, when I go with, with, you know, whoever I go with, I because I'm not an autonomous climber. I may have climbed six, eight thousand meter peaks, but I need to be guided, and I'm honest about it. You know, I mean, I have a, such a bad sense of direction. I mean, I get lost in the office, um, and I, you know, and it's something I'm not very good at. So I know I need to be guided. So, and I, I want to. I don't, you know, I want to be. I want to rely on. Okay, that there, there is a tent up there. Um, so I know with the companies I go with that that will be the case. But if yeah, you go with a yeah. cheap company, maybe you have to say, okay, but I better check. Are my oxygen bottles there? Are they full? Uh, has my Sherpa climbed an 8,000 meter peak before? Oh, he hasn't. And then some of the cheap companies said, oh, if you want a Sherpa who's climbed Everest before, then you pay an extra two, three, four thousand dollars $4,000. So sometimes it's also false economy. Because, you know, yeah. in, in, with one company, you have the package price. With the other ones, there's a lot of add-ons in the end. So, yeah, but, but I mean, I do agree. I mean, I think regulations will be a good thing. But you and I know that it's very, very difficult in Nepal. There are great ideas, but implementing is always a problem. Yeah, I've been tracking, um, I call it the silly rule season, that um, yeah. I've been tracking it for 10 years. And I've got this, um, I've got this chart that shows every year the new rules that are announced typically comes about this time in june july after especially after a, a difficult year like this year that the nepal government gets a lot of bad press so they issue some press releases saying that they're going to institute these new rules they never get they never get implemented primarily because of the uh, lack of continuity in the government it seems like every you know at least a year every couple of years a new a new group comes in and they ignore whatever was a previous one so let's uh, let, we could talk about we could talk about this forever, and I and I um, 
I find it just so okay. fascinating. Mainly in, in the area that I really focus on is the same one that you landed on, and that is personal responsibility. Uh, it's mm. up to the individual. You know, it's like you know, you can choose to fly an airline with a horrible safety record or one with a really good safety record. There's going to be a price difference, and you know, it's but the difference here is that you know what you typically know by virtue of you know global regulations. What airline has a safety record? Which one is you know is really safe or not? In climbing, you just don't have that. Anybody can put up a website. And to your point, you know, they can claim they've, they've summited Everest, therefore now they're a qualified guide. And there's really no regulation. So it's really climber beware environment. Yeah, now, yeah, yeah. But, so, but I, go ahead. You know, I, I also, just very quickly, you know, on the eight deaths you talked about, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the people are just too inexperienced. And I think, you know, yeah. I mean, the climbing skills is one thing but also high altitude and listening to your body. I mean, we've yes. seen so many frostbite this year. Yes. Why did we see so many frostbite? Because A, the weather forecast was, you know, it was a lot colder and a lot more wind, windier right. than they thought. But I think it's just, I, I mean, most people probably could avoid dying from high altitude sickness if they listened to their body. You know, yeah. when you have it, it can go quickly. But I think, and maybe I'm being unfair, but I do think if you, because there are early warning signs, and if you listen to them very early on, then I think you have a good chance to save your life. The problem is that people don't really know what it feels like, and that you can only learn at high altitude, I guess. But also... You know, they're so driven by wanting to reach the summit that they ignore it. And I do really think the early warning, if yeah. people listen to it and turned around, I think a lot of them could, could be safe. But then a lot of people don't have the experience. And then, yeah. You know, that, and that's you mentioned earlier that people use Manaslu as a training peak for Everest. And I'm a, I'm a strong believer that you should go climb an 8,000 meter mountain before you attempt the highest in the world in order to do exactly what you're saying. Because, you, again, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what it feels like to get frost nip that can lead to frostbite, which can lose to your fingers. Uh, you know, it's the old adage of there's there's no bad weather. There's only bad gear. But, <laughs> you know, but there's yeah. also these days, you know, people like Michael Fagan and um, Marty uh, Kieser out of Belgium and uh, Chris Tomer and the Swiss agencies, you know, they they understand weather forecasting to a science. And this year, there was a lot of predictions that, you know, people were climbing on days when the weather forecast, they said there was going to be high winds and the, and the uh, operators allowed people to go up anyway. So, you know, that comes back full circle that is, you know, you need to go in with your eyes wide open and not expect that, you know, somebody's going to, you know, make all the decisions for you and save your life if you get in trouble. That's simply not the case. And, you know, and sadly, the, there's 17 families right now that are, that are um, suffering from that false assumption. Let's move yeah. on to the Himalayan database. Exactly, so, because I think we've already chatted for an hour. I, I know, I know, I know. I always tell people we're going to do this for half an hour goes to an hour. So we're going to, so let's, let's make this the last topic and let's try to, let's try to um, honor the Himalayan database and what Ms. Holly uh, built along with uh, you and, and, um, uh, and the rest of the team. So Richard Salisbury and the rest of the team, um, Himalayan database, I, you know, what I remember my first experience with, um, with Ms. Holly, I was climbing Choi OU and I was in the hotel Tibet lobby and, uh, the, and I was in the uh, guy behind the desk said, you know, Mr. Arnett, I have a call for you. I'm like, what, what? Well, anyway, it was, it was, it was Ms. Holly. She was, you know, 
Uh, Mr. Arnett, this is Ms. Holly. Uh, what are you climbing and wh where are you, who are you climbing with? What is your team? What route are you going to take? I'm, well, I'm, I'm going to do trail you. And I'm sorry, who is this? And, well, this is Elizabeth Holly. Now, what team are you going to be with? <laughs> that was my first introduction to her. And my last time I interacted with her, when I was with Bill Crampton, we were going to do, um, we we're going to do Manislu. And the baby blue beetle came driving up, uh, you know, to one of the hotels. And she came and spent, graciously spent some time with us. She was just a legend. Um, can you can you summarize your relationship with her? I mean, I know that's an impossible question. No, it was a very and uh, and that's um, why I hope the book will will be in English soon because I do talk a lot about my relationship with Liz Hawley. I had a very difficult relationship with her, um, but a very affectionate, I think, in a way. I mean, I. A lot of my friends said, but Billy, how can you stay with Miss Woolley? She'd shout at me. She would, you know, she would throw things at me. She would, you know, fly off the handle for things. And um, But I kept on going back. I mean, but, but she was also very funny. And I, I just found her fascinating. And I remember once, you know, I, I arrived at her house. Of course, I was late and my hair was disheveled. And, and Miss Woolley looked at me and she said, have you looked into the mirror today? For God's sake, woman, go into my bathroom and fix your hair, she would say. You know, or when I told her that I was going to go and climb Everest because she always wanted me to be in Kathmandu and she didn't want me to climb. Yeah. And she literally threw her keyboard at me. <laughs> so, for God's sake, what do you, you know? And I mean, I just left the house and in the afternoon she'd ring me up and she'd say, Oh, there's a Spanish team going to Chou Can you meet them? And I said, well, Miss Hawley, I just thought you'd fired me. And she said, fire you? Of course I wouldn't fire you. You are very useful. It's one of the best things. So she was who she was, but I am who I am. And I take things personally. And I always thought she didn't like me. And I was really you know, striving for her to like me. And I would drop everything. I mean, I remember one evening I was having pizza with Uli Stett and Miss Hawley would ring me and she said, oh, there is a Romanian team in the Hotel Mala. They're going, they're leaving tomorrow. Can you go and see them now? I drop everything and go and see that team. I said, Uli, I'm so sorry. Can you pay my pizza? Oh, I might be back when, you know, by the time I got back, Uli was gone. And I would drop everything. I was scared of her, but I was fascinated by her at the same time and then I think it was I mean I can't remember when it was uh 2012 maybe she would ring me up and I mean there were days when I just you know times I mean she'd ring me 10 12 times a day and I sometimes my heart would would sink and I think oh my god you know what have I done now is she going to shout at me um but yeah and I remember one yeah maybe halfway through my time with her she said can you come here now and I said no, Miss Wally, I can't. I'm coming tomorrow morning at nine o'clock. And she said, okay. And that was it. You know, and I think from that day on, she respected me more. You know, oh. I put my foot down because I was always, I did what she was. I mean, really, my friend said, Billy, I don't know how you do it. But I was fascinated by her. And I, you know, and I mean, in the end, I, I, and I think, and I write about it quite a lot in my book. And the last two years with her, because she gave up in 2016. That's why you said at the beginning of this session yeah. that I've worked with her uh, since 2016. No, she said in 2016, 
I'm done with it. It was after an interview she did with uh, Bill Burke, actually, and Garrett Madison, when she had, when her mind went blank for a couple of minutes or a second even. And after that interview, she said, and that's it. Miss Hawley was very pragmatic. She said, I just, my mind just went. I couldn't concentrate. I'm done with it. She never looked back. She said, wow. now you it. And she wasn't really that interested anymore. You know, I sometimes go, so, 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 and then my relationship with her changed because all of a sudden I didn't have to submit my forms to her and she'd check them and I'd, she'd find a typo or she'd shout at me for doing this or that. So I went there every single day just to chat. And if I hadn't been there it's at, at, at five o'clock, she'd ring me, she'd are you not coming today? Of course, no matter how busy I was, I would go there every day. And these last two years, you know, during the time when I was there, were so valuable, so precious. And we had such great conversations. And I, I also, I did a few interviews with her, which I recorded. And when I was writing my book, I could really directly quote Miss Hawley, which is great that I have this. And uh, and I never thought I'd, I'd miss her. I miss her very much. And she yeah. was such a an important part of my life uh, in, in Nepal. And, um, and of course, you know, now with the database, um, I wish I could talk to her. And, and, uh, and you know, I mean, the, the, the fact and, and because now we, we have made some changes because it's no longer possible to interview everybody who goes and climbs Everest. And I, um, I know you want to ask me the question, but very quickly, there was a, so I published something on Facebook explaining what we're doing. Yeah. And there, there was one comment and I normally don't reply to comments because, you know, otherwise you get into a thing yeah, and I don't, yeah. but you know, that person saying, oh, you're throwing Miss Hawley's work into the trash can. And I just thought, no, I don't think so. And I really thought I could actually say, I've known, I knew her so well, and I'm 95% sure that she would have acted what we're doing. And I remember it was in 2015 and I even have that on tape. She said to me, if you want to save time anywhere, then forget about Everest. There's a joke what's happening there. And that is oh, wow. Miss That's Miss Hawley's words. And I can dig out the audio. That's what she said. Yeah. And that was in 20, there must have been in 2016 or 17. It was after she gave up. Yeah. Um, you talk about her wit and her style and her approach. Um, what she said that you're useful. I remember um, she asked me one time. She said, "So, wh what is what is your uh, what do you do for a living?" And I said, "Well, I'm a manager." She goes, "That's not a job." <laughs> I know, of course. You know, when people said, "Oh, they're retired," then um, yeah. Hey, Alan, can we just press pause? I need to write a text to somebody because I'm supposed to meet somebody. Is this right? So that just reminds me of how the Himalayan database used to go and interview every single climber and every single expedition leader. But, um, you know, to wit this year with, you know, 40 different teams and close to 500 climbers is, uh, I, I guess it's just become physically impossible. And I guess the Himalayan database has not been interviewing individual climbers for the last several years, but in the, in the last couple of months, the, there was some mountaineering press that came out and blasted it like it was new news that 
big changes at the Himalayan database. And almost people began to think that Himalayan database was no longer going to even report. So can you give us the give us the facts on exactly the changes that are happening and what is what's the database going to look like going forward? I think, you know, the database is, is you know, nothing's going to change significantly in the data you will find on the database because as you very rightly say alan we haven't been able to meet all the teams like i did when i first started working from this hall in 2004 2005 i had a list i mean there was it was a lot of work but i would try and i would probably catch maybe 80 85 percent of the people who would go to these big mountains and back in the days you had like russell bryce an expedition leader and 20 clients and 20 shepherds. So Miss Hawley would meet with Russell and he would tell her about the 20 shepherds, the 20 clients and, you know, everything around it. Now, such teams, they still exist. I mean, you mentioned International Mountain Guides and, and Guy Cotter, but they have very few people and they're very few, few and far between. So the Nepali companies, they have a lot of individual people. And we don't really know who is where people fly in they fly out they they spend minimal amount of time in Kathmandu a lot of people don't even know who we are anymore so over the last five or six years you know I've realized that this is I've tried you know I've tried with a lot of the companies but you know they are helpful you know don't get me wrong but they often don't really know who's coming when it's just too chaotic and um, so what I said to Richard Salisbury, I said, I think we have to make it official. We have to say we will still get the numbers. And I mean, Richard spends all day. I had no idea. He only told me this year. I mean, the amount, the amount of information that is on different blogs, on Instagram, on Facebook yeah. is humongous and of course people say but you know people can put anything but if people really want to lie about their expedition they would lie to us people have lied to miss hawley people have lied to me sometimes she's found out sometimes she didn't you know happened to miss hawley happens to me so so richard sort of scans you know every day all day during the season like probably you do as well you know to check out all the reports and so on and so forth and then we have a good, so Jeevan Trester, who's, who's worked for Miss Hawley for longer than I have, and I think he started in 2000, he has a good uh, connection to the Ministry of Tourism. So we get, at the end of each season, we get the numbers. And, you know, I mean, I still think, you know, people climbing Everest, it's still a huge effort, even though it's it's hugely facilitated, but it's just no longer relevant to us to find out when were you at camp one? How high was your camp? When were you at camp two? How high was your camp? These are the classic questions because everybody's going up the same way. So if we have the numbers, and of course, I want to talk to, for example, Kilian Journey, I would still chase him because Kilian Journey was on the Hornbank Kuluar this year, even though he was on Everest, but he did a different route. Right. But so, so now we want to focus on interesting mountains, interesting routes on the big mountains, like I just mentioned. And, um, you know, people say, well, oxygen, lesser sense, yes and no, they still go up the same routes. But of course, you know, if you climb without supplemental oxygen, if you climb Everest without it, 
then I probably find it more interesting to talk to you. Um, but certainly uh, new routes, but anybody, and I really want to emphasize this, anybody who comes down from a mountain or, or, or arrives in Kathmandu and says, hey, I'm going to climb Manaslu, I want to get in touch with the database. Um, you know, I'm so grateful to anybody who fills in our form, you have the QR code, or rings me up or sends me an e email. I'm the first person to get on my bike, no matter which expedition <laughs> peak you climb, and come and see you. And I'd be delighted because this is part of the reason why I do this job, yeah. to meet people, to talk to them. But I cannot chase you anymore, you know, or we, you know, we're a team of, of there's Toby, there's Rollo, uh, there's Serena Rai, who still does a bit of work, and there is uh, Jimin still and the Chinese lady. But, you know, they all have different jobs. So, you, you know, you know, so, so, yeah, so I think that's really important to me. If anybody wants to meet us, we are the we are delighted to interview anybody. But trying to run after people with these numbers is just no longer possible. So the macro data, you know, the number of people that came to base camp, the number of summits, the number of people that summited with and without O's, the number of, of hired and members, um, as the database terminology uses, all that's going to continue going in, into the future. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay. The the data you will get in the <clears throat> database. I mean, as I say, we probably won't, you, you, you know, Robert Smith going up, uh, yeah. you know, with a, with, a, with a group. If we don't meet them anymore, then we have their numbers and we have their summit times, but we don't have the details of, uh, you know, I always have a little bit of detail on summit day, the conditions, you know, how many people on the mountain. So that will no longer be there unless I talk to you. But, but, yeah. but you know, the numbers, the analysis, that will not change. And I think, you know, maybe I did not make this clear um, in, in, in my little post, but I think, yeah. So, so it will, it's just the individual interviews or the chasing people that will change. Billy, it has been just an immense pleasure chatting with you for over an hour. I think this, you now have the record for the longest podcast that I've done. And I'm so I sorry. Could, no, no, no. I could go on. I mean, God, we didn't even get into stuff like, you know, what's the true summit and how do you know? And is it, you know, what do you want to backdate old? I mean, there's tons of other stuff you know, guided versus unguided. I mean, there's tons of stuff we could talk about, not to mention um, your own exploits. Um, I love- We have I to do a number, we have to do a sequel. Maybe we have to do a sequel, maybe do a whole series. I'm sure people would love that. <laughs> yeah, people would be bored. <laughs> no. I don't know. You told me when we before we went and started recording, you were telling me that in Germany that they give you a word. And if you use the word, in the, in the middle of a podcast and they stop it right there. But if you can go and not use the word and use the word like flower, then if you don't say flower and one podcast went on for six hours. So I mm -hmm. now have a new goal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Not, not. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it, it's interesting. I mean, you think, oh my God, a six hour podcast. But I mean, you know, I do listen to them running and some of the people are really interesting. And then yeah. of course you can control it yourself. You know, right, I, I right. could say, you know what, Alan? Flower. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, you said your word was going to be Everest and you'd last about 30 seconds. <laughs> so wonderful hearing about um, the person behind the book 
uh, uh, riding my bike in Kathmandu. Hopefully it, it gets translated into English. And um, I hope, wish you all the best for, you know, with the commercialization of the book. But also, you know, in your mountaineering aspirations, I hope you get seven. Uh, I'd love that goal. I think it's a fantastic goal and, you know, continue mm. to climb without the, without the O's uh, in a pure style, which I think many people admire, but few people can do. So the ones you've done is, just, I mean, you know, tip of the hat for, to you. All the work that you've done um, in, in, with the Himalayan database and, and continuing to honor Ms. Holly with not only your deeds, but your words and just remembering her. And she was, uh, she was an interesting character very complex and I love the way that you you uh, you know you bring out all those nuances in, in her character and her personality but more importantly is just getting to know you better I think anybody's been in mountaineering um, that's you know scratched below the surface a little bit knows your name but very few people know who you are so I hopefully this introduced um, you know the person behind the name and behind the book and behind the database so thank you so much I know you've got an appointment to get to so appreciate yeah. your time. Yeah, but thank you so much for having me on the podcast and for giving me the chance because I know you have a huge listener or viewership. Uh, and also thanks to you, Alan. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I do, I check your website every day and then I, my mind boggles by, how does he know? You know, um, so yeah, no, it's 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 really helpful. And um, yeah, so you do a great job and uh, every once in a while, you know, you can correct me. I sometimes, you know, if I've, I see something, I'm like, right. yep. so I hope you don't mind. I haven't done it very often. I think um, <laughs> you do your research well. So thanks also right. to your job. I appreciate that very much. That's a high compliment coming from you, Billy. Uh, All right. Anyway. Take care and namaste. And you, namaste. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.